Welcome to the Televerse, the podcast just for TV. Because it's great, we're lucky they make so many fine programs to see. Your hustle and Kate like to debate the merits of all that they've seen. Comedy, genre, reality, drama, and anything that's in between. Welcome to the Televerse, less of the show. Hello and welcome to the Televerse. This is Kate Kalsik, joined as ever by Noel Kirkpatrick. And uh, and Noel, this week there's still more terribleness happening in the world, but you know what else there is happening in the world? There is the Schitt's Creek finale. There is a fascinating and potentially amazing sounding Good Fight premiere that I haven't had a chance to watch yet, but you're going to talk to us about and I'm very excited about. And there is just a lot of delightful uh, social distancing things like the John Krasinski Some Good News thing with the Hamilton cast and this week's This Week in Distancing, which is like this this middle schooler who wrote a coronavirus song with her euphonium uh, for a school project, and it's absolutely delightful. Uh, yeah, th- so I'm focusing on that. That's what I'm focusing on this week. I think that's a f- those are fair things to focus on. I just focus on how weird it was to leave my house last week and mm-hmm. I didn't care for it. So, <laughs> I'm glad you're finding good things. Whereas I'm just like, it's all bad. Yeah. Yeah. See, this is, I do appreciate the, uh, the Krasinski thing that he's doing um, every now and again of some good news and like taking feel good news stories. And th- you have to be willing to not examine them too closely. Cause like, any any news right now could be easily spun to but it shouldn't have to be that way because of x y and z and then you're yeah. immediately right back where you started but um yeah i do for if you want a catchy ditty to be stuck in your head i do recommend all day long the coronavirus song i'll link to it in the notes uh it's uh, just it's just her and her euphonium singing uh all at home alonium <laughs> etc with her little sister who runs around and eventually plays some triangle in the song it's delightful which is good yeah it's good stuff um so this week we're going to be talking about giri haji which we've been like teasing for a while but we finally got like finished our watching of season 1 it's an eight episode season this was a bbc co-production right or did netflix just acquire it I've Netflix acquired it. This was a BBC production that aired on BBC Two. Mm-hmm. I think last year. We we figured we should talk about it here. Uh, there's there's yeah, this is an interesting conversation that's coming at the end of the show, everyone. Uh, but it's eight episodes. Uh, so if you're looking for a crime drama, then I guess pause the podcast, go spend eight hours uh, with bloody crime drama, and then come back. <laughs> And let's see what we have to say about it. Um, We are going to try to keep things on the shorter side this week since we had such an extra long episode last week. Um, So we're just focusing on a couple things. Uh, There's plenty of news going around. But what I thought was an interesting story for this week was uh, that SNL is going to be back this week uh, with an all-remote episode. And I feel like there are certain things that will work just fine for that and others that will not at all. So I am intrigued. I'm definitely going to be watching. Yeah, I'll... I mean, I'm, I'm not going to be awake to watch it, but I'll mm-hmm. definitely watch it the next day. Oh, yes. that That's yeah. what we all mean, mean listeners. Yeah. We mean okay. we're going to watch it on YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> Goodness knows I'm not watching commercials. I don't even have an issue with the commercials. I just have an issue with I go to sleep pretty mm-hmm. quickly. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, well, we're going to head right into our weekend TV because uh, mostly I just really don't want to wait to get to this Jazz Girl song, but also because we've got some TV to discuss and I am intrigued and very excited. So here is Simply the Best as performed by the cast of Schitt's Creek, aka the Jazz Girls, in the Schitt's Creek ser- uh, series finale. So we're going to listen to that and we'll be right back after this. Is it me or do they look like husband and wife? Kind of. Again, that was the Jazz Gals performing Simply the Best in the Shits Creek series finale. So good! Okay, uh, this week in TV, we only have a handful of shows. We're going to talk about the Good Fight season premiere. The gang deals with alternate reality. Then the Shits Creek finale, uh, sp- uh, happy endings, and then I'll talk just a little bit about their special best wishes, warmest regards. We'll go over then to last week tonight with John Oliver, which had one American News Network and one day at a time, Boundaries, and we'll round things out with RuPaul's Drag Race and Snatch Game. And I'll do a sni- slight tease for uh, their next episode, which is Madonna, the Unauthorized Rusical. So first up is The Good Fight, and I did not get a chance to get to this one. Here's what I know about it. I know that I believe, I don't know, I believe that in this premiere, season premiere, Diane wakes up and she wakes up in an alternate reality where Trump lost the 2016 election. And that's enough. I am immediately, oh my God, I need to watch that just based on that premise. But then I've also heard rumblings that it goes from there and like, that's just a jumping off point, which makes sense for the Kings, makes sense for the good fight. But I'm also just, like, fascinated on what that could possibly mean, because isn't that enough? So what do I need to know about the good fight uh, premiere? The gang deals with alternate reality. So here's the thing. That should, the premise of it, uh, Diane wakes up in Hillary won, Hillary won 2016, Merrick Garland's on the Supreme Court, Elizabeth Warren's on the Supreme Court, the rainforest is on the rebound. There's a cure for cancer. Um, there's a cup polar bear population is like ticking back up. Um, so like it's very much sort of a borderline parody of resistance brain type mm-hmm. stuff of if only we had type of stuff. Um, it's kind of similar to like what we sort of went through on a low key way when George W. Bush won um, in 2000. Well, one in Air 2000 yeah. uh, and instead thinking about everything Al Gore would have done. So that kind of a thing. But it also plays like the same way that they parody like the new cycle that Diane and everyone is exposed to with the Trump stuff. Um, the thing that it pivots out of based on all of this, and I feel like this would have been enough for them to just kind of explore this world. But the pivot that they make is that because Hillary won the Me Too movement, the Women's March, everything just doesn't take off. And as a result, 
a number of like really famous men have not been prosecuted, lost jobs, anything along those lines. Um, so Mar- Matt Lauer and Charlie Rose are both still on the air. What the big pivot point for the episode becomes is that Diane, prior to this our version of Diane waking up in this alternate reality, had lured away Harvey Weinstein from Blum. Mm-hmm. And now he's being represented by Reddick Bozeman, et cetera, et cetera. But our Diane is like, no, wait, no, we can't do this. He's a horrible human being. Mm-hmm. And everyone's like, you're the one that got him. What are you talking about? He's a rapist and he's all this sort of stuff. And that's where the episode hinges is like, we get a, we get her trying to convince everyone that Weinstein's terrible, including like his management team shows up and wants them to review some NDAs. Um, there's a discussion of the women and how the women are basically just disgruntled actresses. So the discourse that kind of surrounded all of this, um, the Ronan Farrow stuff is mentioned real quickly as a report that even MSNBC thought was too shoddy to air. Um, so all this stuff is like embedded and baked into this. And it's very weird from like, I was talking with uh, Whitney McIntosh about it a little bit on Twitter. And she pointed out the fact that even though this episode takes place in 2020, all of this was like a thing in 2017. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's a very weird sort of discussion of like, this was an open secret. No one's acknowledging it. Da, 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 da. And it just becomes a really weird sort of exercise in it's a good thing. Trump got elected. And because that's sort of like the pivot point that it makes is like, because of this, there's like this larger discussion about women can't afford to be angry if they want Hillary to get elected again. Um, So um, Diane like tries to launch hashtag me too through her social media account acknowledging the work done by the woman who originally founded it, uh, the hashtag back in like 2006, but it doesn't work because it's considered too angry to get Hillary elected again. So there's like this weird politicking Mm -hmm. happening as well. And then she wakes up in realizing a couple of different things about the reality that aren't quite right Mm -hmm. before we actually end up back where the episode, where this show ended um, in season three with the SWAT team about to converge on her door. And so all of that gets kind of played out. Um, it's just a really weird finale, not finale. It's a really weird premiere. I don't think it works very well. I think the pivot to Weinstein feels very much like they wanted to do a Weinstein episode, but didn't know how to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, within a time, within a framework in which it wasn't taken for granted, basically, and they wanted it not to be taken for granted. Um, but it just it doesn't gel in any way, shape, or form. Um, even if you do get Sarah Steele, who plays Marissa, saying how many men were masturbating into plants, um, over and over again, and it's a good line, and Sarah Steele hits it each and every time mm-hmm. very well, but. For me, it just never comes together in a way that feels any way satisfying. And it doesn't feel like it's saying anything either. And the message it does feel like it's kind of saying is a little gross. Um, and I don't know quite what to do with the episode. So I'm. it feels like a lot of wasted like potential of just the premise. And then just kind of goes into, goes into something else that doesn't really come together, doesn't really work. 
And so, yeah, it was a week-ish premiere. I'm curious to see, like, what the actual reality episodes are going to look like um, now. Um, Because one of the things to note is that they only finished eight episodes before they had to shut down production. So of their ten, they only did eight. So I'm curious about how that's going to influence things going forward. But a good reminder is that Hugh Dancy's on this season, and I'm very excited about that. (laughs) Yeah, no, me too. Um, Yeah, that is a just a really not great place to end up in your message is that maybe it's good that Trump got elected, but like with everything that's going on right now. Um, yeah. Also all those people that died from the mismanagement of hurricane, uh, Maria and also right. kids in cages and also lots of things. Um, so I'm going to try to not cause like, I'm wanting to just rage at that concept, right? Like instinctively, and that's not a good way to respond to something. I need to watch it and and, and you know engage with it and go from there. But um, yeah, that is that's not a great takeaway. Yeah, and I don't think it's necessarily like the takeaway that they want us to have, but mm-hmm. it feels sort of what they end up kind of writing towards, and it's very weird. Um, you mentioned like the cages and everything. And I do want to like point out that Diane does go on this long um, spiel about everything that happened under Trump. And Audra McDonald's character just looks at her and goes, wait, where were the Obamas during all this? And Baranski goes complete deadpan, even in the eyes, like just her eyes go deadpan. And she just says they had an overall deal at Netflix and then there's a silent beat, and then they resume, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the most, it's arguably the most pointed thing in the whole episode. That's actually the only really interesting thing in the episode is that little moment of, yeah, where were they? Um, and I think that's really interesting, but it's it's really the only interesting thing in the whole thing. So it's rough going. Yeah. Okay, well, I am intrigued. This is why I wanted you to watch it, yeah. so that I could know if I was just, like, off my rocker about this. Yeah, well, I will do my best to watch it for next week. Uh, I would have liked to. I just ran out of time this week. Um, so, yeah, very interested there. Over on Shit's Creek, we had their finale, uh, Happy Endings, and the just the wedding episode, basically. And there was also Best Wishes, warm, Warmest Regards. I saw, I knew that it was, like, a sort of a farewell kind of special documentary about the show. And I expected it to be a half hour. And then it was an hour. And I was like, I'm not watching an hour of this, but it was on. And so I started like watching it while I was like getting ready for bed and stuff. And yeah, no, I definitely watched the whole thing. <laughs> I was getting so like very wrapped up in it and very, uh, I thought it was very heartwarming and a lovely goodbye to the show for people who are particularly strong fans. So if for whatever reason your DVR did not catch that or you were just seeking out the individual episodes and you didn't know there was a special, highly recommended for the Schitt's Creek stands. And obviously of the two of us, I am the person with a stronger connection to this show. I am a sucker for it. And as they talk about in the documentary, if, <laughs> if they've done their job right, the finale is just for the fans. Um, and so, of course, I loved it. Uh, so I, I, I acknowledge I'm not the most objective, but I feel like they pretty much nailed it with this and in a way that uh, was really heartwarming and 
uh, just satisfying for showing their goals for the season and for these characters, where they wanted to start, where they wanted to end, and what their uh, what their priorities were. So I, I thought it was actually a really lovely way to end the show. What, what did you think of Happy Endings? So I think that the idea of this as an episode for the fans kind of fits. Um, even though, like, I sort of... I like the show. I think I have come down on the idea that I kind of respect it more than I sort of actively like it, mm-hmm. um, which is, I think, fine. And your your mention of objectivity, I just really want to point out that's just a nonsense thing. Um, <laughs> it's okay. Um, taste is subjective. And so with me, I think the finale is fine. Um I think that the the confusion around the massage is very, very funny. And I like the journey in which that joke gets us to the vows. Um, I found like to be a sort of delightful payoff. Um, But I never really got fully engaged in the episodes, like larger emotional sweeps, um, which is partially just the fact that I'm not as invested in the show as a number of other people are. Um, but also partially I sort of blame the show a little bit because Kate, I'm not going to lie. And I know this makes me sound just horrible, but where did Moira get that drag queen Pope costume? And it just really bugs me that she had that. Why? That feels like, of course she would have that. Where was it? Or she could get that made. Of course. No. I, I don't I don't buy it. It just it feels she's yeah, had like t- so much time to prep for this wedding. You don't. Th- it just it just took me so far out of it of like the logistics of wait where did this come from? There's been no discussion about this. We've had long discussions about dresses before, but this is just here, and I'm just like it just kind of took me out of it. From yeah no I I fully acknowledge that I'm very way off in left field about this. But it just took me immediately out of the sequence um, of just like, where did this come from? And I just I just couldn't get they, past it. They have money now. Do they have money? Yeah, yet? they have money now. They talk about that. They Because they signed the deal. They have money now, which is how they're able to fly off to California. She got her, her tennis bracelet and her signing bonus for, for her show that she... Right, They have true. money. Yeah. So it does... Yeah. I have absolutely no... First of all, I have no trouble believing that Moira Rose would wear that to attend the wedding because she's Moira no, Rose. No, see, here's the thing. I don't have an issue with it from like a character choice perspective. Yeah. I have it just with a where did this come from see yeah i i have no trouble with like the idea that she had this planned out and because there was plenty of time for her to like either like acquire pieces or to talk with someone and then when there was money uh when she had money again to be able to like really step up the the bling and like the level of it you know yeah like oh that that is shocking to me there are so many things that i could imagine you having trouble with in this finale, but I would never have guessed that. Okay. Well then clearly the whole ending, like second half of the episode was nowhere near it. If that kept taking you out of it, that would be a much less successful finale. Yeah. And this isn't anything again with like Catherine O'Hara's performance in that sequence, which I think is really, really funny and very, very good. Um, And she just kind of immediately owns the whole outfit and take, takes control of the scene. And I find it very, very good and well executed, but just it just 
oh, it just made my brain kind of short circuit a minute and I just could never get it to jumpstart back. Um, so the rest of the episode's fine. And then I don't know what to do with the sign, Kate. Like that was arguably one of their worst episodes, I think. Um, and back when they were still like, like waist deep in, look at these yokels type of comedy that they really quickly pivoted out of, which was smart. But I just don't, I, the sign's very cute and very sweet, but it was a a reminder of like literally their worst episode. Um, (laughs) So I'm just like, what? Sure. Okay. It's good. And it's a good callback to like the stuff with the creek earlier in the season um, that I think is amusing, but it's just, it was weird. And I thought it was weird to have that as a callback. Um, Even if it, I feel like it's supposed to rectify what they maybe felt was a mistake and should have felt was a mistake, but I don't know. I think it's a good finale for people who really, really like this show. It isn't. It was a perfectly okay finale for someone who is not very invested in this program. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so for the sign thing, I thought that that was lovely and really worked. Not as necessarily as a specific shout out to that previous episode, though. Obviously, that's there, but as a underscoring of while most of them are leaving, it's a, a solidification of their identity as people who lived here and and were impacted by it, and they're taking that who they became because of their circumstances and their experiences in Schitt's Creek with them as they go off to LA and New York. So for me, that's, that's, you know, that really landed. I thought it worked really nicely because obviously there's the, the direct like face replacement kind of thing, but they also having David and Alexis there too. Right. Um, Yeah. So I thought that that, and, and even just as something that's going to make something as something that, you know, he would uh, he would think was a good idea as a gift, right? That makes complete sense. Um, yes. But also, uh, also as uh, something that would be very uh, like emotional and heartwarming for Johnny in that moment. I think it really worked um, because of the thread that they built through the episode, through the the last couple episodes, specifically in this episode, the the thread that they give Alexis, I thought was really uh, impactful, well, well measured. I like that that was her, like they had already sort sort of settled her career ambitions and where she's going next. So instead they made her note for the finale be, I'm going to really miss my family. Um, As, as the one of them who was the most out the door from the very beginning, I thought that that was just really a, a nice, you know, they'll always, we'll always have Shit's Creek, you know, kind of a thing. Right. Uh, so I, for me, it really worked. But, you know, fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, I loved that since I would have liked more time um, for Jocelyn in like all of this final season. But yes. at least we got, I thought their, the last rehearsal was really sweet. I liked that they incorporated Jezegals, um in the service, which for some reason I did not anticipate, which was stupid on my part, <laughs> uh, but worked really nicely. Also, Noah Reed crushed it all at, through the entire episode that you already mentioned the, the happy ending and like that progression, like everybody in that scene is delightful, but just like the, like the way he slumps into his hand as he's hearing himself say the words out loud is hilarious and really sweet. Um, but I, I mean, 
I can't imagine. See, this is why I'm not a singer as well as I'm not a singer. But <laughs> but I can't imagine having that level of emotion and then singing and delivering that nice of a performance through it. it I mean, mm-hmm. I can buy that Patrick could because he's a really good singer. Um and also he's got he's got good control of his emotions most of the time. He's able to like yes. power power through that. But I thought that was absolutely gorgeous for his vows to to throw in some Mariah with the thread of that through the show. Uh, I thought David's vows were were lovely. Uh, both vows sets of vows better than usual in shows where characters write their yes. own vows. Yeah. Um and ending on a joke I thought was very David and also very appropriate to like kind of let people you know, reel it back in so it's not too over the top and too um, overwrought in the sentimentality. I loved having Moira just like, you know, it's best to not get too emotional in these things as tears are streaming down her face. <laughs> Absolutely lovely. And um, again, we've been complimenting what the show has been giving um, for Eugene Levy, but I thought there was a really nice they let him just kind of, again, just be a core of stability to everybody else around. And because he's gotten so many other bigger moments elsewhere in the season, I thought that really fit here. So, yeah, there was a lot that I, I really liked. Even just, like, Emily Hampshire and her reaction to David's thumbs up when, when from behind uh, the behind uh, Patrick's back was just delightful and, and fabulous and wonderful. So, yeah, for me, clearly... It's not surprising. It it really landed and hit its marks. The even just like the the freak out about the rain and uh and the way that the episode uh begins uh or, or the fact that Patrick had planned a calm down that he's like cuz he knew no matter what even if everything perfect yeah. he Patrick uh, David would be a mess. Um yeah, that was just all all very lovely and and really really worked nicely. So, yeah, it was it was cool and even having the where they end up doing the ceremony and the way they you know put it all together does it makes so much sense and I hadn't considered that because they had previously implied they were going to basically do the wedding at the motel and right, that also yeah. seems like that makes perfect sense. So, it, it like they it was a good misdirect you know it felt like a mm-hmm. like not an actual place that you do that david rose would actually get married but the kind of place that a tv show would have its main character get married <laughs> so yeah. so switching to the hall was was a, you know a good fit and and really nice i just really enjoyed the finale i thought it hit all the neat beats it needed to um i liked that the last shot wasn't with the kids um but was with i mean even just the the Moira and and Johnny leaving, and then the the sign and all, but for me it's just like that notion of the family coming together, and then and then uh, <laughs> commenting on how they're very still hungover, or or will be once they go to bed and then get back up. Uh, but the the I liked that it was the parents going away, not yeah. the kids going away. And which is such a detail, but I thought that was really lovely. And the notion of onto like because theoretically, right, the problems that led to them moving to Schitt's Creek were with Johnny and Moira's finances, and but Johnny's business, right? And so the notion of them starting every their the adventure starting because of a calamity around Johnny and Moira, and then having to pull their kids in to, close. To, to you know, so they could all stay afloat, and then being able to like expand back out 
um, much better and more interesting people. Um, yeah, I thought it really worked. So I loved it. And we're not surprised. <laughs> no. And I think everything that you list is, and that you've talked about works really well in the episode. Like it does. Like I, I think that the episode overall execution is really well put together um, because it hits like it really nicely sidesteps being overly smaltzy or sentimental. Um, just the whole idea that Alexis would wear a wedding, unknowingly wear a wedding dress mm-hmm. is just kind of pitch perfect mm-hmm. um, because it like layers in a number of other jokes that you can make, particularly about like how close they are. And then this idea of, does it look like they're getting married? Or yeah. just like after fleeing your family, trying to flee her family in the, beginning of the series now she's yes like marrying her family <laughs> right but also like that she sort of also represents that degree of stability that you were talking about with um johnny like he she also has sort of come to be one of those pillars for them in a way that i think that david and moira because of who david and moira are can't necessarily be and I think the, the symmetry in which that gets sort of outlined in this episode, particularly with that scene between Alexis and Moira, um, it's just really, really good. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I get it. I liked it. It was fabulous. And I look forward to see to having Moira Rose on best hair and wigs and costumes <laughs> at the end of the year. Um, let's go over to the the partner episode over at Pop. And what a one-two punch, because they also had they had this finale, uh, which you were solid with, okay with, I loved. Uh, and then they had One Day at a Time, Boundaries. And I thought this was a really strong episode. I thought it was hilarious and very, very One Day at a Time. When you throw on all the Outlander jokes on top of that, given my connection to that through Friend of the Show, Alison Shoemaker's Outlander podcast, it was just chef's kiss. It was so delightful. I'm super on board. What did, what did you think of Boundaries? It's really, really funny. Like, I think that the, 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 like, the smartest thing that this episode does is that it switches the caught narrative. Um, because it's way too easy for it to be the other thing. And it's the most obvious choice. So just flipping that around, I think, is just the best, smartest, most interesting thing for the show to do. But then it opens up this whole discussion about the concept of female pleasure in really good and productive ways, I think. And that, that this is being talked about at all within the framework of a 22 minute sitcom family sitcom, no less, I think it's just really, really lovely and really, really important. Um, But it's also just funny on top of everything else from, (sighs) from the catfishing. (laughs) Yep. To the, the book about female pleasure. Mm-hmm. Just everything, I think, just gets layered in really, really nicely. But then to also have, still have that discussion about boundaries between family members and how that gets navigated and still being able to tell it in a way that feels really fresh, even though we've done this sort of, this kind of storyline a couple of times or a gazillion times, depending on how you want to slice it. Um doing it in this fashion while still exploring those same kinds of concepts, I think is really, really important. And it's so well executed. And then you get the Mac stuff at the end and it's just 
kind of just breaks my heart a little bit and I get very excited. <laughs> so I really, really love this episode. I thought it was very, very funny and very, very, again, important is sort of the word I go back to in terms of, it's not as important as some of their other episodes that they've done, but I think it's really significant. Mm-hmm. For those who don't watch One Day at a Time and didn't feel like pushing through to the next show we're going to talk about here. Uh, the premise of the episode is that instead of like take doing the mom walks in on teenage son masturbating uh, storyline, uh, it's it he he walks in on her <laughs> and watching Outlander, watching Outlander, and of course she loves Outlander. Have you seen Max? Come on, yes, she exactly. has a type, and accent is optional. Uh, yeah, the the threads throughout of like Schneider's investment in this, like when things are getting awkward and TMI with with uh, with Penny and her mom, and and he's just like sitting, he's just. You know, I'm I'm actually just I'm invested in this. I'm gonna you go upstairs. <laughs> it's great. Like there's there's some good dynamics there. I like the uh the deal breaker question for Lydia being who's your favorite pope and there is a correct answer. Uh who's the best John Paul II based on the portrait in her room. <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah, there there's just there's so much there's so much here. And like you said, it is layered very nicely. They know their characters so well that every um, instinct they have with what they should do and what they can do with them feels very organic and absolutely earned. Even just the way that they're using uh, Tobolowsky, like it would be so easy for that character to feel pathetic. And and he does a little bit. He but... does, but it doesn't feel like they're making fun of him. Um, yes. Which is very important because uh, the, the dynamic doesn't work if Lydia feels cruel. And so, yeah. so yeah, it's the, their, their ridiculous <laughs> scene. Um, the dinner, the breakfast theater, as, as Penelope calls it, uh, just is lovely. And there's, there's a lot to enjoy. And especially after, after the previous episode, which ended with such uh, weighty, you know, Topics and very timely topics about uh, poverty and and relationships to money and the difficulty of scrambling out of debt. If you and like just the propensity to to have one expense lead to more and more and more and uh, the ability to, you know to ever escape poverty. It's nice to have this topic get the same one day at a time treatment, um, but be a bit more lighthearted about it as it's doing it. So I appreciated a little bit of a tonal shift between these two episodes, uh, but, all, but never a sense that they don't respect or appreciate this topic and the importance of, of female pleasure and of masturbation for those uh, who choose that um, and a lack of judgment, how important the lack of judgment is there. Uh, I like the, <laughs> the Angus showing up for Schneider and then the, and the, like the dating profile that Schneider helped with being better than the first one beyond Craigslist is saying quite a bit. There were a lot of really fun, fun gags uh, throughout the episode and they did all escalate nicely. Uh, we d- should end with Max because clearly you ship it. Um, I, I need it's hard not to, it's hard not to because <laughs> they have insane chemistry, except I do need them to address the baby in the corner. Uh, so yes. hopefully that's going to be in the next episode. Um, so we'll see. Cause I like having breaking up your characters because they have a great thing going, but one of them really wants kids and one of them doesn't want kids is such a mature and painful, but realistic and honest 
way to go that you can't undo it. <laughs> so, so we'll see, we'll see what happens with that. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, it's nice to have one day at a time back. And hopefully a bunch of people watched it paired with the Schitt's Creek finale, and it'll continue to go on to more and beautiful things over at Pop. And by the way, Pop, if you would like to supplement your your lineup here, Kim's Convenience is right there. And they may not be able to do it because of Netflix, but who knows? Who knows? <laughs> it would be nice if they could. Um, the, uh, the next show we have here is Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, and they were talking about uh, OANN, so One American News Network, or OAN. Um, so I have heard of them vaguely, but wasn't all that familiar. Sure. Uh, so this was a very... Uh, appreciated segment for me and also just to get some corona but not all corona uh virus coverage was nice how did this episode work for you no so i'm familiar with oan not that in i've watched it but that i'm aware of its existence and it's horrible um and i think that the there could have been like more in this episode about just sort of like establishing like its background and its history to a certain degree um like that it came out of the Washington Times, which for those listeners who don't know, is a very conservative geared uh, newspaper based out of D.C. Um, and then that they slowly sort of um, launched out um, of something that was a little more um, more foxy mm-hmm. with a capital F. And so I think that there's... Um, there's plenty of stuff to like talk about with this that I think that they could have done, but I think really focusing on the ways in which OAN has become sort of a alternative to Fox in the sense that a, it's more extreme than Fox in any number of ways, but B that it's also sort of, while not as mainstream for the president, it's still something that he routinely like mentions enough in tweets um, and responds to it positively in a way that he gets grumpy about Fox. He does not get grumpy about OAN. Um, so I think looking through that, I think was really, really important. So I think it was a good break from um, the coronavirus stuff. And I think it was an important thing to sort of highlight, if only for a, this is something that's going on right now. It's sort of under discussed because like finding it in any way, shape or form is, um, whatchamacallit, is a little difficult. But in terms of, like, where is it in your channel listing? Is it even on your cable package? Mm-hmm. Um, and finding it that sort of thing. But it's clearly something that is having a somewhat burgeoning influence, even down to, like, how they point out that, um, like, the press, the press, the, the White House press correspondent for OAN showing up, even though they're supposed to be, like, rotating people in and out. And it's like, oh, no, I'm I'm here as a guest of the press secretary, so I can just hang out here in the back and still ask questions. Kind of speaks to their, not necessarily their influence, because I think that their influence is minimal or minimized to a certain degree. Um, it's not as much as, like, Hannity, um, whose influence is incredibly large. Um, but I think that it still sort of acknowledges that to a large degree. Um, so yeah. So did you feel that you gleaned anything in particular about this, um, news channel? Um, cause I think it, again, I think it's only available on like a couple of, um, like providers and I think mostly through AT&T. 
is like the only uh, teleco that carries it, but I'm not entirely sure about that. Which, if it's carried just through AT&T, that's just delightful that then they're... <laughs> Business <laughs> yeah, daddy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, having a story, a central, like piece on this is i think very good because they might be tiny and not uh, very impactful right now but we have seen how quickly the news landscape can shift in our current uh situation and it seems foolhardy to me to dismiss them because they sound ridiculous and they're obviously not journalists or news because that doesn't matter to a significant percentage of the population who is happy to is happy to consume blatantly untrue news air quotes and internalize it to the point where you can present them with any amount of fact and it won't matter. So, yeah, I think this is a good thing for them to have covered. I think it is well well uh, reported by Oliver and well delivered presented by Oliver and yeah don't just say oh well they're a bunch of cranks and dismiss that because that is dismissing that as a ridiculous thing that couldn't have any sway on national elections and national politics uh, didn't work so great uh, the last time that's not learning the lesson dismissing these guys because they are blatantly propaganda is not learning the lesson one of the many 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 lessons of 2016 so yeah on that cheery note any final thoughts or shall we go over to snatch game yeah no let's go over to snatch game um so your reviews over at tv club i have not read it yet because i wanted to talk about it before i read it um so what did you think about this episode I thought that it was a disappointingly forgettable Snatch Game. And I think that actually the level of the queens is pretty solid. That nobody, there aren't any big problems. There aren't any, like, there's no romp room fuckery, <laughs> to quote Latrice Royale. Um, but the, the Snatch Game really, really suffers from having too many queens. And yes. there's, because there's 10 of them and they don't interact very much because this is not a set of queens that is good at improv. So they are not good. They, like, with a little bit of time to write, they can come up with answers. And some are better and some are worse for Rue. The the queens who, you know, did the best are the ones who kept going back to their pre-established gags that they had planned ahead of time. Um, but because there's so little interaction between the queens, what you get is a very chopped up and uh, just glazed over set of impersonations and, and bits. So I, th- I feel like we saw... Like, Jada got, like, one and a half answers. Same thing with Widow. I mean, like, there's ten queens. And I most of them, I thought, actually did a solid to good job with their Snatch Game. Um, Or at least I would have thought that if I could see more of it. And even if, like, just if there was more time for the Snatch Game, either people, we'd see people do better. Or we would see them do worse. And you could have more of an opinion on, on things. I really feel just two people didn't do well. The worst was obviously Aiden, and the yes. second worst was obviously Britta, and then everybody else, I couldn't really tell you anything other than Gigi did really good, and Jackie did really good. And yeah. that is a 
that is a problem. And maybe there isn't a second more of good footage on the cutting room floor. Maybe they used everything they had and it just was a bad snatch game, but not a memorable one. And so that's it. But I kind of doubt that. I feel like, uh, I mean, and some people, I saw some people commenting that actually this was a longer snatch game, but it didn't feel like that. It felt like we barely got started and then it was over. Um, so yeah, it's not a, bad snatch game but it's not a memorable snatch game and that's kind of the worst snatch game so what did you think so i agree with you in that there's just not a lot of room for anyone and like you mentioned um you mentioned jana jada's cardi b um jan's uh burning that peters got very little which to be fair was probably a good call um because that impression was a little wishy-washy um but I do agree with you that Aiden did a really terrible job as Patricia Quinn, so much so that Patricia Quinn released a statement saying, I'm offended and this was bad and I would have appreciated a heads up that you were going to butcher me like this, um, which should say everything that you need to say. I do agree that Britta was not very good as well as Jennifer Holiday. It was just Britta in another makeup. Um, but the other thing that I think is worth mentioning as bad is even though we get very little of it and yet for some reason it was apparently very funny was Sherry Pye's Catherine Hepburn, which is just was aggressively bad um, in both sort of the idea of doing a late age Catherine Hepburn. So really playing up the motor skills and the, the warble um, in a way that doesn't feel funny at all on the base level, but B also um, isn't, wasn't the right voice either. Like I have an overt familiarity with Hepburn's voice on all stages of her career, including the era in which that cherry pie decides to go like of golden pond and later type of era. And the voice just is right. It's not there and it's not funny. So that was also, even though we get very little of it because Sherry doesn't factor into the show anymore, so much so that we don't even see her runaway look in this episode. Um, and yet, we still have to sit through some critiques uh, because they thought she did a good job in the Snatch Game, to which I go, was there a different Catherine Hepburn performance happening that I didn't get to see? Um, so that was also really, really frustrating for me. Um, but it was just boring. And that, I think, is like the ultimate problem. Is And I think you hit the nail on the head when you say that there's just no interplay between anyone, really. Aside from Jackie and Gigi, to a certain degree, managed to find little ways in, but not enough. And it's just, it's sort of frustrating to watch that play out. Yeah. What did you think? Would you have given the win to Gigi? Yes, absolutely. And that's something I actually wanted to kind of like talk with you about to a certain degree with um, doing Sophia. Um, the robot, but also Crystal Method doing Poppy as well. Um, And one of the things that came out through this episode was that no one knew who Poppy was, Um, which to be fair, I didn't know who Poppy was either. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm okay with all of that. Um, And, but I did know who Sophia was because I'm, I, I like robots. What can I say? Um, but I think that one of the things that they need, that they need to do and by they, I sort of mean Rue and the producers need to start doing is like paying attention to YouTube more. 
Um, especially when you're going to keep casting these younger drag queens. Um, well, and your audience terms, is very your audience young. Too. Yeah. Yes. That this is where these impressions, these celebrity impressions are going to start coming from more and more. And the idea that you're going, that Rue's going to keep needling Crystal to do DeBarge when Crystal has no idea who that is. You can tell every time that Rue brings that up, it like is less funny and more hurtful. Yes. Right, exactly. Just be this thing in my head and don't be you. And that was like the essence of that was very strong as as Rue was talking to Crystal. Like that hug is one of the fakest things I've seen on this show about drag queens. It's like, that's not how you hug someone. Turn both faces direct to camera. That's so awkward. And also, uh, I don't believe that Vanjie, if she is going to hug someone, hugs that way either. Because Vanjie strikes me as not hugging or like a big ass hugger <laughs> like yes. an emotional like from the heart hug and that was just it was so fake it was really it was really frustrating <laughs> yeah so i think that there's like they need to start like giving room more like research basically yeah yeah to read up on to have this stuff prepared um which is why like i was really really glad that michelle like mentioned her kids that are like obsessed with Poppy. So like, I've got a frame of reference, even though no one else on this panel actually does. Um, So I really, really appreciated that. But the other thing that I wanted to sort of like toss out, and I wanted you to like, kind of give me your thoughts on this. If you have any thoughts, and I know I'm sort of half ambushing you about this. And I apologize. Mm -hmm. Is the fact that we have Crystal doing a personality who pretends to be a robot. And we've got Sophia the robot um, through Gigi as well. But we've got basically two sort of robots and that kind of idea of performative gender play, which is very, which is bedrock foundational stuff of drag. Um, And then we're putting that into robots, basically. I'm really curious about what you think about sort of how this mixes in with the politics of what drag is about, that we're taking it one step beyond sort of the gender play that drag is based in. And then what does it mean when we're doing this about robots in which we're putting gender performativity onto robots like our, as ourselves, um, like through programming, through how we like conceptualize them and have very consistently across history. Despite that all the assistants are female. <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly, exactly. So how do how how does that sort of like transition the idea or does it transition the idea of drag? Because I'm sure someone's written about this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was really struck by how much of Gigi's performance, but also Crystal's selection, is founded in this idea of gender performativity, but then we're putting it on a robot, which is a non-gendered thing, except we keep gendering it. And the ways in which Sophia as a robot both feels very much like a robot, but when you turn, when you really discuss Sophia, you're discussing a chatbot with a face because it's not really AI per se, um, but that you still have like that whole thing about calling Rue a bitch is both drag, but also very much what a chatbot would do given the programming. And so it's this weird sort of like intermix of things that I haven't been able to suss out, but I've been thinking about off and on for a week. 
So I kind of want your your thought on that, or if you'd given any thought, or if you're just like, no, we'll just shut up. You're overthinking this. <laughs> you know, I love overthinking. Um, I know. Yeah. For me, Poppy and and Maria or Sophia are very different because I don't think that Crystal was engaging with that those issues in the same way. Right. I think that's fair. That, that's something that the actress who plays Poppy is definitely engaging in. Yeah. But for Crystal was just staying in character to the detriment of her snatch game, um, which is exactly what happened in the improv challenge too, when they're like, so is this like, is this made of squirrel juice? And she's like, no, <laughs> right? she couldn't. She's just like, no, it's just squirrel butter. It's just, I don't have anything funny to say. And that, so as a Girl Scout, I would, or a Squirrel Scout, sorry, I would say this. You know, so she was just staying in character the whole time, even though it wasn't funny. Um, but as for, as for Gigi, her Sophia is definitely engaging with that. And I mean, in a way that obviously the creators of Sophia and all of these robots, the fact that they always are presented as female, um, and the coding there for being, um, uh, uh, subservient and a, and a, a helper and non-threatening and everything that goes with that. Uh, that's very, I mean, it's very, very intentional. So I thought that, I mean, it was interesting that they were talking about at the mirror, uh, Gigi was talking about having concerns about coming off too masculine because of the bald head. Cause I never would have, I mean, just from the way she paints, I would not have, you know, consider that as something to be worried about. But yeah. definitely, I mean, I think it was something that that she was she was making a point to engage with in her performance, but only on a minimal level. And that strikes me as something that Gigi would be much more interested in outside of the context of Snatch Game, outside of the context of the show, just because there isn't time. And frankly, the show is not interested in that. The show would please like some more dick jokes, please. <laughs> so, uh, so, so, you know, I think that's the kind of thing that I would look for from in drag in a big way and from Gigi, definitely. But not, I wouldn't expect too much of that because the show only... I, f I feel like Drag Race only lightly engages with these themes at the best of times. I would love right. if it did a lot more, uh, if it was a lot more curious and a lot more um, supportive of queens who are playing with gender in more interesting um, and challenging ways. Even just like the fact that we had on um, Drag Race UK, uh, was it Crystal, who um, didn't shave uh, her, uh, her chest and like that was like a bold thing when you compare to like all the queens out there that's that's nothing but for drag race that was a big thing you can't I mean and there's a reason that she was on drag race uk they have a queen like that on drag race uk but not on our, our main drag race uh the u.s version of the show so um i think that's an interesting topic i don't think it's overthinking and i haven't engaged with it that much just because i've been working on the next one but right but uh or thinking about the next one but yeah it's definitely i think i think that there's there there and yeah it is a good conversation and an interesting one to have well then that sort of like your answer sort of like has me thinking more so about like larger things which i mean we're 12 seasons in three two to three all-stars and then an international spinoff of 
what is Drag Race's responsibility? How much of what Drag Race displays, like codifying, solidifying certain things, and is, and again, you're probably not equipped to answer this, and I think it's just more so like stuff I need to like do research about, Mm -hmm. of the degrees to which that they're influencing drag culture, both like in terms of what gets represented, but also what is the reaction to this as well in terms of drag type representation? It's a really limited set of what drag is. It's a very specific pageanty subset of what basically what RuPaul most values in drag, but also what is, I mean, what is marketable. Yeah, absolutely. So like it's the main priority of the show is to be an entertaining, successful show. And they're hoping to affect culture and raise the profile of drag. uh, Absolutely. As part of that, like along the way, but ultimately what's going to make the best show and what's going to make the most marketable and the most interesting and exciting show that will catch on with the general public. That's what I consider their priorities. Yeah. I don't know if that's what they should be, but that's what it feels like, you know, 12 seasons in. So, um, yeah, there, I'm sure there, there, I'm sure there's plenty of scholarship on the topic. Yeah. And I know there are a lot of people in the drag community and, uh, certainly the people who support drag and are curious and interested in drag who have very strong feelings about drag race's role. Um, yeah. And, uh, and whether it's, there are some people who think it's harming more than helping, and I don't know that I agree with that, but um, I'm certainly not an expert in any way and cannot yeah. speak to, to, to that. Um, but there's definitely interesting scholarship on the topic. Yeah. No, I'll have to look it up because I'm just like, especially 12 seasons in, like, I think that there's there's stuff to start thinking about and boundaries to start pushing. That would be great. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, what wins your week in TV? Uh, one day at a time this week. Um, I think just that episode was fantastic. Uh, what about you? I think I know, yeah. but I just I, I'd like to I'd like to hear you say it. Yeah, no, it's, I mean I, I mean I love one day at a time. Uh, but this is my last chance to give it to Shit's Creek, and I thought it, they nailed their finale, so I'm giving it to Shit's Creek. Now we will listen to a trailer and come back to talk our season one spotlight on Gary Haji. We'll be right back after this. Yeah. 
父さんから連絡があったからだけ俺たちが待ってるからってあんたの家族は始めたことだ形はどうあれあんたの家族に落とし前につけてもらうよもう That was a trailer for season one of Giri Haji, which is available on Netflix. It's an eight episode season that is told in English and Japanese with characters from Tokyo in London and also, and vice versa, actually.、Um, with the, but with the bulk of the action, at least initially, taking place in the UK.、Um, so this is a crime show, it is a, a suspense show and lots of intrigue.、Um, and I'm curious what you. What you thought of it,、um, and whether it worked for you. Because、uh, for me, parts of it did, and then parts of it really didn't.、Um, and I, so I was very invested in certain parts, and I really didn't care about other parts. So I'm curious how it all came together for you. Yeah, and I don't know that I have an answer for you. I finished this series today as we record、um, this morning, and it was sort of a long road for me to watch it this week.、Um, like, Emotionally, I had a very sort of down week, especially Monday through Wednesday.、Um, and I had like just a really terrible headache on like Monday and Wednesday that it made sort of watching this show very, very difficult in terms of just it was not a great experience to watch the show.、Um, from having to read subtitles with a headache,、um, borderline migraine, to just trying to get. Oriented about the narrative of the show sometimes was a little difficult for me、uh, given the week.、Um, but yesterday and today,、uh, I was much better in terms of being able to watch the show,、um, which leaves me with like both a position of I don't know what to do with the show because of my experience, but also I don't know what to do with the show because of what the show is.、Um, and what the show. And when I say what the show is, I very much mean the fact that it feels like at times it wants to be a really straight crime international crime procedural type of show, a la like The Bridge, is sort of like the most like obvious sort of connection to sort of draw to it.、Um, but at the same time, as the show goes on, it starts increasingly to feel like. It wants to make fun of the entire genre that it's operating in. And then it starts to take real big swings in the last couple of episodes that I just go, wait, what are we, what, what is this show? What are we doing right now? I don't hate it, 
but what are we doing right now? Um, and we'll talk about it because you know exactly what I'm talking oh, about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sort of like grappling also with just the show's aesthetics as well in terms of what it does with aspect ratio, which with what it does through film, film sort of stock and digital post-production manipulation to the weird sort of jumble of crime narrative concepts that it just kind of puts into a shaker and just like goes to town on it. Um, that I don't know exactly that everything that the show wants to do comes together in a way that I think works. But I am also just endlessly fascinated by some of those decisions, particularly again in the towards the end of the season, that I can't help but keep thinking about it in terms of that if it had been more dedicated to what it was doing, particularly in like the last three episodes, I think that it would have been a very, very good show. But because it takes a weird amount of time to feel confident enough to do those things, it feels like a real hodgepodge of a show that I think is anchored by a couple of good performances, but then the rest of it just is there. Like you're saying, like there's a lack of investment, large parts of this show that I just, I don't know what to do with it. And it's kind of frustrating, but I also don't think that this is one of I still would, I think, end up recommending it, but only to very select people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, it's a different show in episode two than it is in episode six, than it is yes. in episode eight. And it's a very different show. Um, it took me a while to get invested and to get, like, I was like, it was a slog for me at the beginning. Yes. Um, in, until it started bending a little more towards comedy. And yes. we, when we started spending a little more time with Rodney, uh, I was I was like, oh, okay, now I'm very invested. Rodney and Sarah hanging out. I am here for that. I am here for the jokes. I am here for, uh, you know, all this. But at a certain point, I, I couldn't tell what, if any, morality the show has. And... I don't... Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, when certain things are happening, I'm like, why are... Why are these things happening? Why? Because it feels like you're just trying to punish characters, and but not with any intent, not for a reason, not for a narrative reason, or because for a plot reason, or for just just to be mean, just to make things difficult and hard for people, and that's not a that's not a good enough reason. Um, yeah. Making things easy because you like them is also not a good reason, but. There was a specifically some turns with Rodney's character and then with Ian that I was like, this felt this feels gratuitous and not for a point. There was stuff that I I like it's a really gory show, which I saw some people talking about, but that only hits in around like episode four. And so you're watching episode one, there's some there's some violence and everything. Um, and then they get to the, you know, episode two and three don't really feel that way. Then by the end of episode four, there's a massive shootout. And then it just gets steadily grimmer and darker. But again, not necessarily for what didn't feel like to me for a reason or for a purpose. And I don't want to watch violence for no purpose i also didn't feel like it was informed enough by its setting in london people walking around with guns everywhere in london 
when like police officers don't even carry weapons uh seems very strange and like people should be talking about it more um so yeah it just was not moored in a clear philosophy or our central ex- like topic it wanted to examine or or a thematic or a um genre-based thing. It it just felt very unmoored throughout the season. And while I liked several of the performances, I liked actually a lot of the individual characters or performance separated out from the storyline, the arcs and stuff. uh, By the end of the season, I was like, well, I guess I'm watching this because I have to finish it for the podcast. But I, I have ceased to buy into some of these relationships. I have ceased to care about them or or really believe them and you can't i mean don't ask me to invest in kenzo's relationship with his wife when they have like two scenes together in the first episode and then he's on the then he's in the uk and we're just supposed to fill in all this backstory um and all this other stuff that isn't really there for me so i don't i don't know i just i really struggled with this one and I think that's fair. And I think a lot of it speaks to, and you mentioned like the show's lack of morality. And I think that's really important when you consider the fact that so much of this show feels like stitched together in a lot of ways in terms of like our ostensibly our big bad in in, in London is Connor Abbott, um, this organized crime boss who feels like he's been airlifted out of a Guy Ritchie movie, particularly yeah. by the end of the sh- end of the show. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, that he doesn't feel of a piece with literally anything else that's in this narrative because he feels like he's he's from a Guy Ritchie movie. But as a result of that, it feels weird when you've got Justin Long showing up as a would have been crime boss from Pittsburgh, which is a funny joke, but Again, they don't find any way to make it feel of a piece of Kenzo's search for his brother, how that gets baked into that with his relationship with Sarah, the detective constable with the London Police Department, and then just everything else. Um, That everything feels pulled from other sorts of these, this type of story, but with all the tones sort of like, like jumbled together in a way that doesn't quite work even down to the strained relationship between kenzo and ray on the ways in which the show tries to dramatize that in a way that works and for me sometimes does that really successfully that split screen shot of them on the phone going into the three when he's in and at the end he's in the middle that was really impactful Right, and this gets to like another thing about the show's aesthetics, but I'll put that in a little box for just a second. Of like, they find ways to sort of do it, and I think that when Ray, as long as uh, Natsuko, uh, who is Kenzo's mom, come to the forefront in the last like three episodes, and just a again in a narrative that feels like it's part of another story, another like thing but is really delightful on a number of different levels um, that you just, I don't know what the show is and the show doesn't know what it is, 
But then it just keeps finding these little moments that I just immediately sort of respond to and glom onto, like that the split screen use of the telephone conversation or her voicemail in like episode nine about we're in the diner. And just like the weird poetry of that voicemail message that just feels really just kind of gut-wrenching for me, even though Ray's borderline underdeveloped, her relationship with Kenzo is very stock um, to this kind of narrative, but it feels like it's from a very specific character that doesn't exist. And that's just so bizarre watching the show try to make all of that work. And I don't know what to do with it still. (laughs) Yeah. See, I want to watch that show. I want to watch the Taki and Rodney show. Uh, I want to watch the light, like, buddy cop slash fish out of water um, show with uh, Kenzo and Sarah. But they're not the same show. I really enjoyed Justin Long, actually. I thought he was terrific and so well cast. Yeah, he's he's it's such a good turn for him. Like yeah. it's perfect. Yeah, he's really good. Until like until that storyline just like they're like, okay, we're gonna be done now and move on to something else. But we must end every storyline with violence, even though there's no reason it doesn't come back for any meaningful reason. Like, why not just have him get out of Dodge? Like, why did we need to spend the time to watch another gruesome death if it's not for plot, if it's not for character, if it's not for tone, if it's not, like, why? Why is this there? There are other characters I would rather be spending time with. Um, The stuff with with Rodney and his ex I thought was really interesting and sad and beautifully played, but again, a completely different show. Why is he in the last episode? I assume they're hoping to get a season two. Otherwise, I don't know why he's even in the last episode, uh, other than I enjoy that performance, so I was glad to spend time with him. But it's just, it's it's so disjointed. And I, like you say, I'm I'm interested in all these different shows. I'm interested in Ray on the Lamb. <laughs> like, yes. Very much. Getting pulled over by friendly uh, <laughs> friendly police officers who get it, you know? Um, yeah. But uh, I- I'm here for secret reveal of undercover cop or whatever. Uh, but I'm here for the backstory about about Yuto and and his, uh, his you know, in, in a- a- Aiko, right? Um, Aiko, yes. Yeah. I- but... I, I was not compelled by how, how it all came together at the end when we're supposed to be invested in some of these big character choices. Um, I just, I'm like, but why should I want this person to get away or to be brought to justice? Or like, there isn't a character left that I am invested in as a, like, as like a core for what the show is. Yeah. Um, and that that's a problem. When you want me to, like, still... I mean, I think they want you to be very invested in Kenzo through to the end. And after some of his choices, I'm just not. Yes. Because um, they didn't earn through, them. Through no fault, I think, of Takahiro Hiro. Yeah, he's really good. Who's really fantastic in this. And so is Kelly McDonald, who plays Sarah. And I think that's sort of the saving grace of the series, is that all Especially of the Especially McDonald are, for me, yeah. Yeah, are really, really, really good in this show. 
um, like top to bottom, I think even like the even the poor guy who has to play Sarah's um, ex-boyfriend who she sent to prison for corruption again feels like he's from a different show version of this show but it still kind of works for me um and i think that's sort of like the weird thing about the show is that any number of these performances work even like um maury's uh partner toshio all of the characters feel like really specific and lived in through the performances um not necessarily the writing but sometimes the writing gives those little glimmers that I really like. Um, I think another really good example is Donna, the uh, assassin who works for Abbott, who immediately, I'm very interested in her, just not in this show. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I think that there, again, there's just weird things about the show that I really responded to, but then the overall whole of it didn't quite work. So let's sort of like talk, I think, about the aesthetics, because you mentioned in the rundown, the animation stuff um, in our rundown document, the animation and the previously ons. Um, I want to discuss those. I want to discuss the show's aspect ratio stuff. I want to discuss how it like does like it's varying layers of flashbacks and how they visually depict those, the split screen stuff, which I think is really good. But the key thing for all of this for me is that they don't deploy them consistently enough to be effective. Um, Particularly like the split screen stuff, which I think again is a very sort of crime thriller visual motif. Like a lot of it is very Michael Mann um, that I really, really love when they used it for the crime stuff. But then when they would do it for like emotional stuff, it hit really, really good and really, really well. Um, but other, like, really quick aesthetic things, like, the way that they layer subtitles in sometimes, like the Me Too, Me Too, Me Too thing in the car, um, also is just really, really good and really not experimental, but experimental for this show and how it operates for the most part. So how did you feel about, like, the ways in which they were these kinds of aesthetic experiments that they did before we talk about the big, aesthetic the big one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I love, I like the animation a lot. I thought it was beautiful. Yeah. Uh, the, the reason I mentioned the previously ons is I wanted to put that in the document so I didn't forget them because I was, was skipping them at least initially because uh-huh. I was binging it. And then I stopped and came back like another day later and it just automatically started with the previously on. I was like, Oh, this is gorgeous. They've got these like still like painting kind of like yeah. designed kind of shots that get spoken over like of these stills from the different, you know, different moments in the previous episodes. I was like, oh, what a gorgeous way to do that. And, and really distinctive. There's a lot of aesthetics here that are terrific. The the way it's shot, it's very cinematic, um, which Okay, let's be more specific because it's very much Please. a TV show. It yeah. is like the lighting, the camera work, I think is very good and very effective. The the even the action scenes for me were very visceral. Um, the even if they didn't always make sense, um, yeah. I couldn't always follow everything that was happening. The um, the music, the use of music, uh, and when they would use music of in different languages really was imp- uh, was. Clearly very considered and I thought was effective. Um, you mentioned the subtitles. There was There's a lot of really interesting elements to how this stuff is presented. Yes. And 
that's clearly um, something that's a priority for the, sh- uh, the the writers or showrunner or whoever's in charge at, at Gary Haji, uh, which we, we should mention the title is Duty Shame. You know, that's, that's the translation. And those are clearly strong themes in the show. But point being, it's like I keep all of that. And then also bring in someone who's going to do that level of of uh, care to the threading of the storylines and the the motivations and the 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 themes of your show, like because it, it, it was it was really beautiful to watch, and they make these really interesting choices, even just like with the lighting and and everything, and then. It's like this is a really beautiful scene that I'm not invested in. Yes, <laughs> it would yeah. be nice if I was more invested in this very beautifully shot scene. Yeah, and I I think that's sort of like the trouble is that that degree of investment is just hard when some of the writing is just not there. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, let's let's talk about let's talk the about thing. the thing. So, okay, listeners, listeners you've been warned. Yeah, you've been warned. We've been sort of dancing around this. This happens in the finale. Um, In lieu of a big rooftop shootout that I was immediately sort of suspicious of because it's clearly a set when they've been avoiding sets. Um, I just went, this is weird. And they didn't think of anything about it because I was just like, maybe they lost the roof in London that they wanted to do this on. And then as... And if you're still listening, then you're just like, we're not going to watch yeah. it. And yeah, yeah I'll, ex- I'll give we're, you a little bit of context. There's spoilers, yeah. Yeah. That Taki is trying to defuse a stand, a, a um, whatchamacallit, a um, standoff situation by maybe jumping to her death. It's a little unclear the character motivations for this. Yep. But it ends with everyone rushing to her. Even the Yakuza who are holding her hostage, like, rush towards her. And then the aspect ratio shifts. The color goes to this very stark, saturated black and white. And we get a prolonged and I think really beautiful interpretive dance number of all the characters, (laughs) even the characters who are not in London at this point, Mm -hmm. doing an interpretive dance sequence that I think goes on for at least like a solid like two to three minutes, if not a little bit longer. Um, And I don't know what to do. I think it's really lovely and really interesting. And I appreciate the fact that not everyone's a good dancer, but they don't try to hide that. But it's so weird. And it comes out of nowhere. And I just, I don't know what it is. But at the same time, it's just like, I feel like I'm going to be thinking about this sequence still at the end of the year. But I don't know what it means. And I don't know what to do with it because it doesn't make sense in the rest of this show. Kate, what was your response? Because listeners, Kate told me that she was going to be watching this while she was on the treadmill. <laughs> <And> <laughs> I, I finished went, before I got there, fortunately. I was like, Kate, this is a choice that you were making. I look forward to you being okay. <laughs> <laughs> How did this play for you? Um, yeah. Uh, okay, the other thing that I, aesthetically, that I appreciated about that transition is that it's almost like a like a freeze like a grecian yes. like relief in the moment before it transitions into a dance sequence and listeners y'all know i love a dance sequence but i didn't buy it uh because i didn't think they had earned it with anything they had done so far and so it just felt very very artificial and yes. and 
like they were trying to shortcut all these relationships. It's like, yeah, you know what? This is really interesting. These the way you're showing how how these people are tied together. But I have no sense of of Taki's relationship with her mom or the or or with Ray or Ray's relationship with um. Uh, I have very little sense of Ray and uh, Kuzo, uh, Kenzo's relationship. I certainly don't have a sense of their dynamic altogether. Uh, so when you're watching them get intertwined with each other because they're so all connected, uh, I don't. It doesn't have a visceral impact on me. Uh, and also, I I really enjoy Sarah and Kelly McDonald, but it's very clear that most of the time she's when she's not immediately interacting with Kenzo, she's just kind of standing in the background going like, I'm not related to any of this other stuff. Okay. Do that with twirly arms. You know, um, the parts of it worked, but the, for me, the parts of it that worked were the one were the relationships that I was invested in. And yeah. there were not nearly enough for that scene to work for me. I wasn't yeah. invested in Yudo and Kenzo's relationship. Like I needed to be, I wasn't invested in just, in most of it. And so I was just, it was just, I appreciated the swing. I appreciated the instinct. Um, and I was irritated because if they had earned it, it would have been like mind blowing for me. But to compare it to the other interpretive dance that sticks in my memory, which is Always Sunny in Philadelphia, Always sure. Sunny in Philadelphia's interpretive dance was infinitely more impactful to me because right. it had a clear message and and a clear meaning and uh, a lot of emotional depth that I did not see in this very pretty set of people that they clearly worked on a long time you know the way that it's shot though like the camera keeps moving fluidly for everyone so everybody had to learn the whole dance all at once right and do it I'm sure over and over and over again to get the shots that they wanted um but it just felt it just felt hollow to me, uh, sub uh, style for style and not for substance uh, beyond just the really straightforward. Oh look, we're gonna go this different way. We're all connected, guys. Uh, yeah, so I it just ended up kind of pissing me off, <laughs> which is which not I think good. is really fair because it doesn't like you say it doesn't earn both emotionally but also just aesthetically like it doesn't earn being in this show. Um, and the decision to do it, I think, just feels like a fever dream sort of idea that they just went, yeah, let's do it. And no one went, does it fit? Does it work? Does it make sense? And I think out of context, like it's like you said, it's really beautiful. It's really well executed. Um, but it just doesn't make sense. And it just feels so weird. And this is like an example of like this idea of like everything being connected, which is very much what the dance number is about. It feeds into, again, this concept of a, what this kind of prestige international crime drama ostensibly becomes about to a certain degrees. Um, and that, by this episode, by the finale, that it's veering into this parody of that genre without wanting to fully engage in being a parody down to the weird comedic beat of Ian, Sarah's ex-boyfriend, corrupt cop, almost getting arrested by the police and then getting hit by a car. Um, and it's so weird. Mm -hmm. But it feels both exactly what this kind of a show would do, but played for comedy, which is something you've mentioned see, as well. For me, that was not played for comedy. For and me, see, that I thought was... it was hilarious. 
See, I didn't think it was funny at all. I was just, for me, it was horrifying on behalf of, of uh, Rodney. And it's like, it wasn't enough for him to realize that he's just waste, like ruined this person's life and yeah. trying to do the right thing. Now you have to have him watch him, his actions get someone killed. Like, yes. it's so gruesome. And it's just mean for the sake of me. I don't understand why it's there. Why did, you know, yeah. And and yeah. they're addressing these themes of connection throughout the the show. They talk about like a butterfly flaps its wings here, and are we our own? Th-? Like, there's monologues to that extent, but it's also trying to do so many other things that it doesn't work. Yes. And when you talk about like, I thought you were going to reference comedically the the big thing in the finale where Abbott goes, "Oh wait, they've got your daughter. How old is your daughter? Oh, she's a kid. She's a teenager. Okay, well then I'm going to put aside the fact that I want to kill you, and we're all yeah. going to I'm going to be on the team. Why? It doesn't make any character sense." Nope. At all. It's just there to be funny and so that we can have three people on either side of the fight on the roof. Yeah. It just, it's just, there's no character there. And then at the end, he's supposed to be like, hey, you're in my town. But everybody in your organization is dead. It's not your yes. town. No, Ugh. and it's it just feels really weird. So Just be a comedy then. You'd be a really yeah. good comedy. <laughs> or don't, but then don't. Sorry, I, kept, I keep talking over you, sir. No, uh, did you you're have- fine. You're fine. Okay. Did you have other, other, like, obviously, uh, this dance did not work for either of us. Uh, that's the thing is, but it feels so wrong for me to say, don't do the interpretive dance show, right? Don't swing for the fences. Um, but I feel like you got to know if you're going there in episode eight, there are things along the way that are going to make that work and trying to make that work just with the fact that it's a very stylish show um, is not enough. Well, and see, that's sort of like the other thing when I was thinking about the aesthetics is like, it's not stylish sometimes. Like for me, it feels, especially like in the first couple episodes, it feels very staid. It feels very run of the mill in terms of it's a prestige cop drama um on bbc2 um so there doesn't feel like there's anything visually interesting for like for me long stretches until sometimes you get a flash of a split screen um to which i go cool you've seen a michael mann movie congratulations um but then there's like other stuff like that they slowly start layering in but then it's not layered in enough and just plenty of it just feels like they figured out aesthetics as they went along Mm -hmm. which is why for me and i think for you that that dance number in particular just feels like it just doesn't it just happens um and again i think it's really beautiful but i do think that it just it's hollow and i think your choice of hollow is really really important but i just i just I go back to the idea that I don't know what to do with this, but I think it's also just a weird sort of, especially by the second half, a really weird experiment in the limits of this particular type of show and the ways in which it constrains people. And then you can see this show trying to decide to want to buck against those kinds of things, but then not having done the groundwork from the onset to do that you end up with this really weird mishmash of a bunch of things that don't go together. And they try to make go together through an interpretive dance number. I don't know. I don't know. It's it's just really weird, but I, I still ended up sort of liking the show, I think. But I mm. don't know. 
I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I was much higher on the show in episode like two and three. I was like, oh, okay, I'm bored. I see what they're doing here. I'm on board. This this could be interesting. That and scene then- with that scene with Sarah, like you texted me, buying a bat is just gold. It's so good. It is, <laughs> and, and just like the the performance from the salesperson yes. is really really good. Um, yeah, and then it just is like, no, we're not going to be that show. We're going to be this other thing instead. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, yeah, no, I, I can't recommend this one. I don't, like, I wouldn't entirely trash or whatever. If you're intrigued by what we're, we've said, go forth. Let us know what you think. Um, but there, and there are specific people that I can think of who, like, this is their catnip. Like, they will yeah. really enjoy this. But in general, it's interesting, and I like these performers, and there's a few of, the, of a few actors here where I will certainly keep an eye out for what they do next. Um, but, yeah. I'm more excited about getting caught up with Kim's Convenience, because there's a new season of that on Netflix now. As you should be. My partner and I have refinished it <laughs> already. <laughs> um, yeah, so we're, we're discussing that next week, everyone. So look yeah. forward to that. Yeah, get caught up. Get caught up. Well, a few show notes here at the end of the episode. You can find a post for this episode over at theteleverse.org where you can leave us a comment and let us know what you thought of the week's TV. You can email us at televerse at gmail.com. You can like our page on Facebook and start up a conversation there. We have an M4A chaptered feed and an MP3 unchaptered feed up in Apple Podcasts and we're also up in Stitcher. We'd appreciate ratings and reviews either place. And of course, we are both on Twitter. I am at the Televerse and Noel, you are? At Noel RK. Thank you so much for a great week, Kate. Thank you, Noel, and thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Televerse and another week of Streaming in Place, Lucifer Season 2. Very exciting. But yes, yes, we'll be back next week, guys. Bye.